Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. For the first time in over a century, California condors are soaring over Northern California. The Yurok tribe collaborated in a reintroduction effort. The majestic bird plays an important environmental and cultural role, and its numbers are perilously low because of threats like DDT, lead poisoning, and even poachers. Another tribe is also working on condor protections of their own. We'll hear about the significance of reintroducing the condor to their historical habitat and the challenges that remain. We'll be back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Lawyers in Canada representing survivors of the 1960 Scoop class action lawsuit are requesting court approval to provide a final payment to those who signed on to the case. But as Dan Karpinchuk reports, some survivors are calling it a slap in the face. The so-called 60s scoop was controversial. Indigenous children were taken from their communities and cultures and placed into foster care with non-Indigenous families, often far from their home communities. Many were abused. A class action lawsuit argued that those affected by the program suffered significant harm, specifically the loss of their cultural identity. A settlement was reached a couple of years ago in which the government in Ottawa set aside $750 million to compensate First Nations and Inuit children who were subjected to the scoop between 1951 and 1991. By January of last year, nearly 15,000 claims were approved, including interim payments of $21,000 to each claimant. Lawyers are now asking for an additional $4,000 each. But some survivors, like Colleen Rajot, say there is no way the current compensation is acceptable. We're not going to sit by and watch uh, uh, rich lawyers get even richer, and we're going to walk away with barely anything. Another scoop survivor is Brenda Lee Marcoux from British Columbia. There is no amount of money they could give us that would give us back what we've lost. To lose your family, to lose your language, to lose your culture, to lose everything. Everything. You can't pay me back for that. She and others call the $25,000 an insult, adding that it feels more like abuse, something that's never going to end. Some want more than compensation, an apology, and for those responsible to be held accountable. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Dozens of people walked across Browning, Montana last week to raise awareness for missing and murdered Indigenous people. Aaron Bolton reports the walk comes as the College on the Blackfeet Reservation is launching a database to help resolve unsolved cases. Dozens of Blackfeet Nation residents whose loved ones were murdered or are missing walked across Browning as a drum circle played. Rhonda Grant Connolly's nephew, Matthew Rattlesnake Grant, was found dead in 2016. Our family would leave the comfort of their warm homes to search in blizzard conditions. We searched for our nephew for two weeks without help from the Blackfeet PD Sheriff Department. Wilma Flurry shares the frustration that cases fall through the cracks due to jurisdictional issues between tribal, county, and federal law enforcement. She says the people who murdered her son, Willie Pepian, won't be brought to justice. I never got justice on my boy. They dropped the um, federal, federal charges against the people that did it because not enough evidence. But So they turned it over to tribal 
All tribal could do do misdemeanors. A new database could help families connect with law enforcement agencies more quickly after a loved one goes missing. Blackfeet Community College Extension agent Drew Landry says families can log on to MMIPMT.com and report a missing person, including their last known location anywhere in Montana. If we get a report of a missing person, it's also carbon copy to tribal police, and we are working on having all the tribal nations on board by the end of this summer. Landry says the site will even help connect families with law enforcement off reservations or even in other states. He hopes to have a report later this year on how many cases reported into the database have been solved. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by AARP. New help is available for those struggling to afford high-speed Internet. Eligible households can get a discount of up to $75 per month for households on tribal land. Info at 833-511-0311. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. California condors hold an important cultural place for the Yurok tribe in California, but the bird has not flown over their area for over a century. Threats like DDT, lead poisoning, habitat destruction, and poachers took a heavy toll on the fragile bird. At one point in the 1980s, there were only 27 condors left. But now the Yurok tribe is helping in a reintroduction and management program that is decades in the making. Last week, tribal officials released two of the birds into the skies above the Yurok Nation. The birds, bred in captivity, are the beginning of a larger plan to improve the numbers and expand the birds' territory to its historical domain. Another tribe, the Nez Perce in Idaho, are in the process of similar condor conservation planning. Today, we are hearing about the long, difficult process of bringing back the endangered condor and we'll get a perspective of the cultural and environmental significance of the largest bird in North America. Join our conversation by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Condors are a relatively quiet bird, but they are capable of making noise. Let's take a moment to hear what they sound like. This is a juvenile condor recorded on a nest cam operated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2018. That was what a young California condor sounds like. Amazing. Tiana Williams is speaking with us today from Miami, Florida. She is the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department Director. She is Yurok. 
Tiana, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we're certainly pleased to have you on the show and learning more about the Condors and the program that you folks have going on. Tiana, please begin by describing the California Condor for our listeners. I know it's a huge bird with a frill of black feathers around its neck, but tell us more. So they are actually the largest land-based bird in North America with a wingspan of up to nine and a half feet and weighing as much as 25 pounds, which is absolutely gargantuan. They're an obligate scavenger, so similar to basically a large vulture, um, and they filled a very important ecological niche of being the cleanup crew um, from the ecosystem perspective, going out around the landscape and and cleaning up those carcasses that have already died, but which otherwise um, could not start the decomposition process in an effective manner without these big birds. Nine and a half foot wingspan, 25 pounds. That is a huge bird. Are, are they able to fly well being that large? They're definitely more of a soaring bird than a flapping bird. And so that's why uh, the really big wide open spaces are very important to them and areas with high winds. And that's actually some reasons why our historical territories were really great for them because we maintain through traditional fire a very expansive prairie system because we have access to the coastal resources and the high winds and foods there, as well as very mountainous territory with a lot of winds that helps buoy them up and, and take them from place to place. Mm, fascinating. Now, big news, of course, was last week's release of the two captive birds that were nurtured by your program, and, and you were there. What was that like to watch them fly away? I have not yet been able to figure out the words to encompass how amazing it was. Uh, this is something that I've actively been working for for 14 years now, but our elders have been praying for for much longer as, as they were the ones who originally identified the need to bring condors home, both because of his ecological importance and actually his deep cultural importance to us as a tribal people as well. But yes, our, our first two birds of a cohort of four were released last week and will likely be, re- be releasing the remaining two sometime over the next uh, two to four weeks. And what is the hope of those birds that are now flying on their own, free? What do you want to see those birds do now? Well, <laughs> for now, they're, they've been thankfully from a management perspective, um, sticking a little bit close to home, which is good because we can keep good eyes on them, make sure that they're adapting to their new environment well. They're actually from the condor captive rearing programs. So this is the first time that these birds have actually ever been out in the wild, but they seem to be adapting beautifully, figuring out the winds, figuring out the weather, the landscape. Ultimately, these are are still juvenile birds, fully flight capable, but only about two to three years old, and they won't reach full maturity, able to start adding to the population until about eight years old, probably. So it's going to be several years. So my immediate hope is that these first few birds really act like, well, they're re-exploring ancient territories that they haven't been in a long time, and they're going to be the leaders for cohorts that we continue to bring in annually, four to six birds, um, eventually you know, being the, the leaders of the flock and helping them reintegrate throughout Iraq and surrounding territories. Now, you mentioned elders um, having a big role in this program and the cultural significance. Can you talk more about that importance to the Yurok tribe, the Condor? 
Yeah, Condor or Preganish in our, our traditional language um, really ties to our foundational reason for being. We consider ourselves to be world renewal or fix the earth sort of people. From an ecological standpoint, you can you can see where Condor makes sense. They're literally going out and cleaning up and renewing the world. But he also contributes heavily to our world renewal ceremonies and what they teach us. And these are ceremonies that we hold and other tribes in our area hold because we all kind of have the same ethic every two years and help us bring balance uh, back to the world. And so Condor, not only in our traditional stories, gave us one of our primary prayers that we both sing in these ceremonies and help teach us how to be good Yurok people, but he provides our feathers um, for his regalia, for the regalia that we use in these ceremonies and thereby contributes his spirit. We consider him to be a generous and kind-hearted sort of spirit, again, teaching us how to be good people um, and bringing that energy to our world renewal. And finally, he actually flies higher than any other species in the area, and so he helps carry those prayers all across the world when we're asking for it to be in balance. So it's been very impactful that he has not been a part of our, our cultural and ecological community for over 100 years now. Now, I understand it took this program about 20 years to really take off. Um, is that a long time for the program, or is that about normal for a, a wildlife restoration program to really, uh, I apologize for using the pun, but find its wings? <laughs> no, I love it. Um, so, yes, that, that kind of original decision to bring condors home was made by specifically a panel of our elders called the Tribal Park Task Force who were identifying a natural and cultural restoration needs for our region. And, and that's when they decided that condor had to come home, the most important land-based species to do so. It took several years uh, to kind of get the momentum going and, and establish the relationships necessary with the federal government, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to begin the trek, um, which started with funding from the service through their tribal wildlife grant program to do a feasibility analysis. And from there, expanded to partnership building, to management planning, development, to training in, in condor handling and treatment and all that sort of stuff, and a whole host of partnerships that came from there. Um, definitely, as our, our lead condor program biologist says, um, it takes a village to raise a condor. So it took a long time, I think, to get this program started, but we gained so much, so many friends and so many partners that are going to help ensure the success. So I, I think ultimately it's what was needed for this project. Takes a village to raise a condor. I love that. And and you mentioned the partnerships and uh, some of these key resources that you had to secure. So also just, I would imagine some major lessons that you've learned along the way as well. Can you talk about just what you folks have learned and how you're going to apply that moving forward? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the work that went in really came in relation to the fact that the birds can fly anywhere from 100 to 200 miles in a day, um, 100 kind of being a standard territory, 200 if they're really booking it. So again, that's where those partnerships really came in key. So one of our approaches was to go to our surrounding land managers and say, hey, we're talking about bringing an endangered species home. And of course, a lot of these folks had concerns about what it would mean to have a, a quote unquote new endangered species back on the landscape. So just working with a lot of folks, figuring out their concerns, how they think or didn't think condors could integrate with the system again, um, and finding ways to move forward in partnership was, I mean, there's a ton of learning that went there. Um, 
and I think very successful. One of our uh, probably most important things that we had to work through and learn through is um, helping to combat the threat from threat from lead contamination, uh, which you mentioned briefly. And unfortunately, lead is incredibly toxic to not only condors, but other species of spiritual concerns, such as uh, bald and golden eagles. Um, and its primary source has been uh, the use of lead ammunition has been implicated in that. And so what happens is this relatively soft metal impacts an animal that's being harvested, shatters into hundreds of pieces, some of which can get into a gut pile and which is left behind for scavengers to eat. It's actually the highest mortality cause of mortality for wild condors, um, even today. So probably one of the best and most valuable experiences we've had is just really working with our hunting community, which has been very receptive to this information, to make a change to non-lead alternatives, uh, primarily copper, though there's other alternatives out there, uh, in order to kind of, I guess, engage with their natural conservation ethic that a lot of these folks have and help them be partners in con condor conservation because they're going to be one of the strongest partners uh, to actually make, make condor uh, recovery a, a success. So mm -hmm. that's probably one of the most important things we engaged with. Well, folks, we are speaking today with Tiana Williams of the Yurok Tribe, and she's describing a condor restoration program that just last week released two captive birds on their own. They took flight in the wild. Fascinating conversation. We have more guests coming up right after this short break. And if you have a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Abortion bans will soon start surfacing in a number of states if the Supreme Court overturns the more than 50-year-old Roe v. Wade decision. Abortion access has its supporters and detractors among Native nations. We'll get the view of the upcoming abortion rights landscape on the next Native America Calling. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one -on -one with instructors in wind energy, where students go up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top 10 rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. Thank you for joining us today. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the Yurok Tribe's latest California condor reintroduction program. Please join us. What conservation efforts does your tribe engage in? And what is that process like? We're at 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Please give us a call. Let us know. Tiana, you did a live stream of the Condor release, and I watched part of the recording online. It was super cool. How was that received by tribal members? Uh, I think I think there's a lot of positive receipt of it. Um, we've had we've had so many requests from folks that if they could actually be there for the releases because it was so important to so many folks. Unfortunately, we needed to keep it relatively small because one of Condors is to keep them as as dehumanized as possible, and we wanted them to be comfortable um, and mostly unaware of the fact that we were even there when we were releasing them. So the live stream 
was a really great option for getting the sharing the whole story uh, from start to finish that day with our tribal membership. And I've gotten so many emails and calls and Facebook messages about what a powerful experience it was for so many folks. So I'm just incredibly honored that we had the opportunity to share that way. So, Tiana, what's the ultimate goal now? Are, are there numbers you're aiming for in terms of the total number of birds you're able to release? Are you looking more at how they breed out in the wild? What's the goal? Definitely a combination of these things. So we are targeting releasing four to six birds annually in coordination with the larger California Condor Restoration Program. Uh, again, these birds are coming from the the captive rearing program. So the birds were so low in populations that their numbers are still incredibly tightly managed in terms of genetics and bloodlines and which birds go where. So I don't yet know who we're going to receive, but we're looking at another four birds this next year. We've got kind of a preliminary target of continuing to conduct releases for the next 20 years. And of course, in about five years, hopefully if all goes well, we'll start managing our, our wild fledged birds as well. Ultimately, uh, if we're looking at previous release efforts, um, what's going to happen is they're going to set up territories probably relatively close to the release facility and expand outwards from there, not only through Europe country, but down into the Sierras and very likely up. We're just on the border of Oregon um, in Northern California, so very likely up into Oregon along the coast until it meets the Columbia River and actually pushes east from there. Up, heading towards Nez Perce territory. And so ultimately, I hope that we're successful and Nez Perce is successful and our birds meet in the middle. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I think we're all, all pulling for that reunion there. And you mentioned the California Condor Program, uh, a pivotal partner, I would imagine. What all do they offer your program in addition to some of this training? And it sounds like they are actually, that's where a lot of these birds are raised, right? Through their program? Indeed. And so the California Condor Recovery Program is something kind of led by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but with a multitude of partners, of probably uncountable partners almost, uh, the primary of which are the other existing release facilities in Central California through the Ventana Wildlife Society and Pinnacles National Park. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a site down in Southern California, and then the Peregrine Fund has a site in the kind of the Arizona Southwest region. But it also includes the actual breeding facilities. So our four birds came from the Oregon Zoo and the Peregrine Fund um, Center for World Center for Birds of Prey. But there's also other breeding facilities and treatment facilities at the LA Zoo and the San Diego Zoo and the Oakland Zoo with other partners coming on. There's geneticists who kind of help us manage the overall population. There's outreach coordinators, all of whom are kind of included under this this title of the California Condor Recovery Program and work in an integrated fashion to manage the entire flock throughout the world, uh, Western U.S. at this point, and actually down into Mexico as well. There's a site uh, managed with the Mexican government in Baja, California. Okay. Well, speaking of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we have another guest now who has experience with that department in Phoenix, Arizona. We are now joined by Robert Mesta. He is the Liberty Wildlife Non-Eagle Feather Repository Program Director. He is Yaki. Robert, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you uh, for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, prior to your current job title, you worked for the U.S. Fish and Wild Service, and you did work with the condors. Can you describe what you did there? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I coordinated the condor recovery program. 
uh, four decades, um, uh, the, uh, the 90s, basically. So I was there when we released the first two California condors back into the wild. And then I also directed the uh, release of California condors in 96 into the Grand Canyon. And so, so basically, my job as coordinator was basically to facilitate um, the recovery work that was necessary amongst all the different partners um, that were part of the uh, recovery program. You know, the, uh, the two main components were the captive breeding program and then, of course, we had the field program. And uh, working with the recovery team, uh, my job was basically to uh, move the um, – condor recovery efforts forward according to those goals that were established in the recovery plan for the California condor. Now, Robert, you mentioned all these different um, programs and initiatives that you've been involved with when birds are released. And it seems to me like um, it must be a really exciting time to see a bird released in the wild like that. But also, um, Concerning, I would imagine there's just a lot of risks that could occur. So, and what are those risks? What do you have to worry about regarding a bird that has just recently been released? What are some things that could go wrong in that setting? You know, uh, that's a good, that's a short question with a very long answer. But just about anything and everything can go wrong when you release a California condor into the wild. First of all, you're releasing a bird. Um, into the wild that's basically on his own. He has no parents to teach him how to be a, a wild California condor. And then you, but you have a bunch of humans that can't fly trying to be a parent to that bird. So there's one of the biggest challenges there. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's contaminants um, that uh, they can be exposed themselves to. Um, there can be collisions. These guys are... Um, when they first go out, they're not strong flyers. They're very susceptible. Um, and that's a period of time when uh, when they're trying to land on or off, uh, say, a power pole, you know, that they're susceptible to, uh, to collision. Of course, there's also uh, the possibility of electrocution uh, from power lines. Um, as I said, various contaminants. Uh, of course, the biggest one uh, that we you hear about is the uh, the lead lead poisoning problem, which is uh, super super significant. Um, in addition to that, it's uh, one, probably one of the biggest threats and challenges is overcoming that bird's personality. You know, um, they are they are a, a, a species that learns on the wing. They're not genetically pre-programmed some, like some birds, like peregrines and. And such, and so in that learning process, there's a, a lot of opportunity uh, for them to be threatened. And like I, I said, they um, they're very curious birds, so they often find themselves in situations. They put themselves in situations where harm might occur. You know, uh, so uh, it's it's a difficult challenge. And you know, when people ask me what can I hope for when a California condor release in the wild, back to the wild. I would say that I really hope it behaves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like how you mentioned it. Uh, one of the challenges is that humans that can't fly trying to be parents of condors. That's classic for sure. And listeners, 
Both of our guests have mentioned lead poisoning as being a huge risk to condors and other birds of prey. We actually did a show about lead poisoning, specifically lead ammunition. That show aired on March 8th. So if you're interested in learning more about that topic, I'd encourage you to check out our Native America Calling archives and listen to a recording of that show. Really, really enlightening conversation we did on that day. And Robert, um, what about wind turbines? Are those a big risk for condors as well? Yeah, that's, you know, that um, when I was working with the program, initially the big threat was um, power lines, uh, the collisions and electrocutions. And then, uh, and then uh, in the mid 80s, then, uh, you know, there was more than several proposals for wind uh, um, power and the turbines uh, to that generated that power. And yes, Yes, that's a significant threat to California condors because condors, as was mentioned earlier in this show, you know, um, the reason that they can get around as well as they do is that they um, they learn the winds in their environment, whether they're whether it's an, uh, a warm updraft or a deflected winds. You know, actually, over time, they will learn these winds and they will actually utilize them like highways repeatedly to go in and out. Uh, uh, of their environment, and and as a result, you know, expend very little energy for a bird, you know, that can be as large as a California condor. Uh, unfortunately, those areas that uh, produce those winds and are attractive to California condors are attractive to people that want to construct uh, wind turbines for the very same reasons, the winds. So, yes, uh, they are a threat. Well, it's really fascinating that they use the winds as highways, as you mentioned. And Robert, how did the condor originally become endangered? You know, it was a, a, a combination of of reasons. I mean, there was wanton shooting. Uh, you know, you know, for some reason or another, you know, people just couldn't resist shooting the condor just because it was a large bird. And then, of course, there was. Um, Secondary poisoning, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of uh, poisons utilized to kill things from everything from rodents to the coyotes. And, of course, condors would come down and uh, find those carcasses and, and feed on them and, 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 and be poisoned. Uh, there was contaminants to a lesser degree, contaminants like uh, DDT that it affected their ability to reproduce. Uh, they caused eggshells to, to thin, and as a process, and unfortunately, they would they would crush before they could hatch. Um, and uh, there was actually egg collectors um, back in the 1800s, early 1900s. Egg collecting was a big a big hobby, and uh, um, condor eggs could go for quite a bit of money. So there was it was something as crazy as that that threatened California condors, and so um, and of course lead lead is. Again, we get back to lead, and, and uh, that was um, e affecting condors even then, not to the extent that it's now, but uh, it was also a threat. So it was a combination of, uh, mm -hmm. of, of uh, reasons that the California condor were extinct. And, uh, uh, one of the things that people don't uh, often talk about it is that until um, uh, not the 1900s, there were no wildlife laws that protected uh, California condors, so people could take them and 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 uh, and not be breaking a law, and and so 
there was no there was no laws there to, to help protect them from the type of take that I was just talking about. So the timeline here, uh, a lot of this started in the 1800s. It sounds like, and and this law. When did that law? When did there actually be? When did the the condor actually become a protected bird? Then about what was the time frame then? Okay, well, uh, uh, the Lacey Act of 1900 was the first law that addressed or protected wildlife species. Um, after that, you had the uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, and then after that, we had um, oh, we had the Endangered Species. Well, no, we had the the Bald, Bald Eagle and Golden Eagle Act, and then then of course we had the Endangered Species Act. You know, all all of which. Um, protected the California condor in, in one aspect or another. But but it wasn't okay. until the 1900s that we actually had a law on the book. So um, there was a, a, a large period of time in the 1800s where they, they along with other birds, were exploited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really tragic. Robert, you also supply tribes with condor feathers upon request, right, as part of the repository? How does that work? Yes, we do. Um I uh, I now direct the uh, the uh, Liberty Wildlife Non Eagle Feather Repository um, here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. At this time, we're the only organization that's permitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to accept, hold, and distribute feathers to Native Americans. And by um, by the the term non eagle feathers, the Fish and Wildlife Service operates the feather repos- the eagle feather repository and provides Native Americans. Uh, eagle feathers, both uh, bald eagle and, and golden eagle. However, we provide Native Americans with the other 900 plus species of birds that exist in the United States, and one of those uh, are California condor feathers. And so, um, we regularly receive applications from Native Americans for condor feathers, fill them, and send them out. The feathers that we send out, we receive from various permitted sources. Um, the, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is probably the biggest. Um, uh, the, some of the zoos that have California condors provide us with feathers, and so we're able to take those feathers and, and turn around and through a permit process that's uh, similar to the uh, Eagle Repository, um, provide uh, Native Americans with a, a legal and a free source of California condor feathers. And about how long does it take from the time somebody submits a request to when they would actually receive condor feathers? You know, it, it's actually go, it's actually pretty quick, a couple of weeks, you know. Um, and it just depends on whether we have those feathers in our inventory uh, at the time. I mean, we always have wing feathers. We always have a lot of uh, primaries and secondaries. You know, tail feathers are a little more difficult to get. Uh, so if someone uh, was to apply for say, tail feathers, uh, it might take a little bit longer. Sometimes um, we have individuals that have specific needs as far as the type of uh, uh, condor feathers they have. For instance, um, the white underwing uh, feathers that uh, uh, adorn California condors often will get a request for those, and and those can be difficult and and a challenge uh, and and take a little bit longer. But uh, uh, on the average, Uh if they're just looking secondaries or primaries, you know, we can turn it around in a couple of weeks easy. Okay. And Robert, I know Native Americans, uh, by law, are the only people that are allowed to to own eagle feathers. Is that true with condor feathers as well, or can anyone own a condor feather? No, no. 
it, uh, the, the same holds true for, for California cone of feathers. Native Americans are the only group in the United States that are allowed to have uh, bird feathers of any kind. Um, uh, because, uh, as you know, birds are both federally and state protected. Um, however, the exception being Native Americans, because obviously they've demonstrated over the hundreds and hundreds of years that um, e uh, feathers, whether they're condors or, or, or eagle feathers, are an integral part of their religious practices. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, listeners, the number to call. 1-800-996-2848. If you have a question about condors, if you have insights to share, if you have ideas for restoration programs, wildlife restoration, today's show, that's what we're focusing on. Give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after this short break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. You are tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Flight of the Condors is the title of today's show, and you can still join our conversation. We're looking at condor reintroduction. Are you involved in your tribe's conservation efforts? What are your thoughts? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Please give us a call. Lapway, Idaho is where our next guest is based. Angela Sandina is the Precious Lands Project Leader and Ecologist for the Nez Perce Tribe. She is a member of the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians. Angela, hello. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're sure excited to, to learn more about what's happening up there at Nez Perce. Tell us, how long has the tribe been working with condor recovery? Well, this project really got kicked off in 2015. It was an idea that we had um, that condors really did need to become need to come back to this landscape, and we started that effort with a grant from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that allowed us to do a habitat assessment. And so we looked at over 700 river miles and canyon habitat looking at habitat features for nesting, roosting, and foraging. We assess threats or potential threats within the area and then looked at potential release site areas to see what was available, what, did this habitat look viable for condors, and what would be a, a reasonable area to look at actually doing a release pen. So we've been working on that since 2016 when we first got the grant. The initial assessment's been done, and we did find abundant habitat throughout the area that we uh, looked at. Now, Angela, what areas of Nez Perce ancestral lands did the condor originally inhabit? So condors did inhabit a, a big section of the Nimipu homeland. So 
all of the river canyons, the Snake River, the Salmon River, Imnaha, Lower Grand Ronde, and down into the Columbia. We do know that, that condors were documented by Lewis and Clark along the Columbia River, especially in the lower parts of the Columbia, feeding on the salmon when they were there. And we have abundant evidence from early oral histories as well as Nini-Pu mythology, origin stories, place names, that condors inhabited a, a large swath of the suitable habitat within the Nini-Pu homeland. And are tribal members supportive of the program? Oh, very much so. We get so much excitement from, from tribal members, and, and everyone is very eager they, they keep asking us, well, when are we going to get birds? When are we going to get birds? And, you know, everyone would love to see birds on the landscape next year, but that's probably not feasible. As we know, these efforts take a lot of work to, to make sure appropriately that we have enough partnerships built, that we have the infrastructure in place, and having birds available. Uh, right now, one of the the key bottlenecks for, for recovery efforts throughout the, the range of the condors is availability of young birds. And the breeding programs are doing a fantastic job. It's amazing what the breeding programs are doing these days to produce birds, but there's still a need for birds at all of the recovery sites. And so adding a new one is a pretty big deal. And so with the Yurok program just getting started, we recognize that, you know, our effort is going to have to wait a while, which is good in many ways because it will allow us to really build a strong program here and be well positioned to have a successful condor reintroduction uh, when that does occur. So mm -hmm. while people are anxious to get birds, we definitely want to do our due diligence and make sure that, that we have a good successful program in the end. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, listeners, if you've got a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. Again, 1-800-996-2848 to ask a question or share a comment with one of our guests on the show today. Again, we were talking about condor recovery. And Angela, um, time frame for this work, I mean, when do you hope that uh, these efforts will come to fruition well, currently we're in phase two, what we're calling phase two, and that is partnership building and uh, management plan development. And so as part of that, we're looking at, you know, where to situate a release site. We've been narrowing down our locations. Much of this area is in public ownership, so there's opportunity for public partnership with the U.S. Forest Service or potentially BLM. or Simply on private lands, we have some very interested, conservation-minded private landowners that we've been working with, as well as potentially the precious lands area that the tribe owns in Joseph Canyon is another area that we're looking at for a potential release site. So developing all those that planning and figuring out how to do it, how we're going to fund it, and, and doing all that kind of work is where we're at right now. So realistically, though... Um, probably birds, you know, five to eight years out, I would think. Okay, five to eight years. I know the Nespers have a good track record with regard to wildlife recovery. Wolves, salmon, bighorn sheep restoration efforts have all been successful. Are you folks applying lessons learned from those earlier programs to this condor program? Absolutely, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because tribes 
and, and the Nez Perce tribe in particular, but tribes all over the country have proven lead, leaders in restoration and recovery of endangered species. And a, a lot of times these species would not be recovered without tribal efforts. For example, coho salmon in the Clearwater. The states did not want to recover that species. And the tribe said, oh no, we need coho back in our rivers. And so we now have coho, simply because the Nez Perce tribe wanted it and worked hard and found a way to make it happen. And so we feel the same way about condor restoration. No one else in this area is going to take that on except for the Nez Perce tribe. And it's important enough to the leadership and the membership of the tribe to see that happen. And so, yes, we have a long track record of working with federal and private partners. And we certainly are using all of that history and expertise towards this challenging uh, work to recover condors. And Angela, what are the biggest challenges to a wildlife restoration program like the condor? Well, I think one of the challenges that is really prevalent is educating the public about what such an effort would mean. I think there's a lot of misinformation, maybe some fear about what it would mean to bring another endangered species into this landscape. You know, unfortunately, the great success of the gray wolf program, um, there have been some collateral impacts to people's livelihoods, especially in the livestock industry, from recovering a top-level predator like that. And so that has made people a little concerned or leery about bringing another endangered species into the area. So it's going to be our job and the Fish and Wildlife Service job to educate people about condor and how they function in the ecosystem. Once people understand their role and the fact that the places they inhabit are really not very inhabitable humans, you know, cliff faces in the river canyons, not used by livestock or people, really, and they eat carrion. They do not predate on anything. And so we think that once people fully understand that and see the benefits of condors, you know, talk about a, a you know, a way to bring in outside interests and bird watchers and things for ecotourism, it's amazing. And so I think that's one of the biggest things is just public perception and educating the public about your programs and how they can benefit and or support your programs and what it will mean to them and their children in the future to have these species recovered on the landscape. So I think that's one of the, one of the big keys right there and and funding these programs take a lot of money so that's always an ongoing issue well listeners if you've got a question please give us a call still time 1-800-996-2848 1-800-996-2848 and angela i'm glad you mentioned funding because i'm curious uh restoration programs it sounds like they're pretty resource intensive and I'm interested in learning what it takes in terms of manpower training and budgeting. What does it cost to get this all together? Well, even in the early planning phases, we've already spent, you know, close to a quarter of a million dollars just on planning. And so when you're looking at having a full staff of technicians and biologists to manage the birds and track their movements and intervene, if you see, you know, problems, plus the teams at your veterinary colleges or zoos that are helping you manage birds that may become injured or need 
chelation from lead poisoning, et cetera. It's a huge effort, and it's, it is very costly. Um, but there is good support from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well as private foundational monies, and we've been getting grant monies that are available to tribes for these kinds of efforts. But it is an ongoing challenge. Sounds like. And I'd like to ask Tiana as well. Tiana, uh, Angela mentions grants. And, and how are, is your condor restoration program primarily funded? It is largely funded through grants. Um, the Yurok tribe is diversifying in a lot of ways to support the economic health of the region. But we are in a very economically depressed area. So it's not something that the tribe itself can fully support. I think it's something like 80% of tribes' natural resources are are supported by uh, grant funding. So historically, that's been a lot of federal funding. We've got a ton of support from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, from the Administration for Native Americans, but also that private funding as well. Uh, for example, we got $170,000, which was incredible, from PG&E, a local utility company, to help build the facility itself. And we've also received $100,000 from the Global Conservation Fund to do kind of those heavy facility and infrastructure uh, development that, that was referenced. Ongoing, um, you know, federal and state funding can be very variable depending on the administration and priorities and things like that. So we're really working hard to kind of, excuse me, to kind of integrate with that more private foundation or, or just condor conservationist um, support that, that we know is out there and is so important to the recovery effort. Now, Tiana, I know you're in Florida this week because you're actually presenting at a conference regarding wildlife, and you're going to be talking about condors all this week. So is that a big part of your job, just going out, doing outreach, um, making presentations to foundations and corporations and anybody else who can support these efforts? Absolutely. I always joke with my crew that I never get to do the real work, quote-unquote, anymore, because they're the folks who, of course, are out in the landscape actually chasing condors. Um, as was referenced, we're really kind of acting as their parents right now. So we've got eyes on them as often as possible. But it is real work. I mean, it is very important to be getting the word out there. I would say I'm giving talks like this or the conference or to other interested parties anywhere from one to two times per week, at least, if not more, just hoping to continue to build on the momentum of this incredible release this last week to establish long-term partnerships uh, and, and support for founder conservation. Mm. Well, I uh, thank you to as well, all of our guests, you, Robert, and Angela, for your efforts. And Angela, do the Nespers have concerns about other endangered wildlife in addition to the ones we've talked about today? Could more restoration programs be on the horizon? We're always looking at opportunities to existing populations or recover species that have been extirpated from the area. Grizzly bears are on our, the top of our list. You know, we've had some individual male bears coming into the Clearwater ecosystem, but we have yet to establish breeding in here in this area. But that is one species that we're definitely interested in seeing return to the homeland in Idaho, as well as bolstering our bighorn sheep populations. They're still in trouble, and we've been working for decades to keep them uh, viable on the landscape. So, yeah, I, I see the Nespers continuing to be a player and a leader in recovery and restoration of the ecosystems. It's so important culturally and spiritually to the Nimipu that that is not going to go away. Angela, 
Are there other tribes reaching out to the Nimupu for assistance with not only condor reintroduction, but other types of wildlife restoration in their own communities and regions? Yes. Most recently, we have uh, had another project ancillary to our condor work is a hunting stewardship program to do nonland outreach and voluntary conversion to nonland ammo. And we've had great success with not, not only Pacific Northwest partners and tribes, but nationally giving presentations at conferences and having outreach from other tribes around the country on how they can have a similar program and get their own membership to convert to non-lead. Because it's not just an issue potentially with wildlife, but you could be feeding lead fragments to your family and, as part of your, your harvesting activities. And, and so we want to make people aware of that. And we've had a lot of good success in cooperating with other tribes on that issue. Angela, where can our listeners go to learn more about these efforts up there with the Nimupu and the Condor? Yes, we have a website, uh, www.nezpursewildlife.org, and we have little synopsis and contact information for all of our staff, and we encourage anyone to reach out, give us a call, send us an email. We'd be happy to talk to folks about our program. Okay. And Tiana, we are going to have to wrap up the show here in just a short minute, but could you tell us where our listeners can go to learn more about what the Yurok Tribe is doing with regard to the California condor? Sure. And you can find us at www.yurokcribe.org slash wildlife, or we do have a Yurok Condor Restoration Facebook page as well. Okay. And Robert, how about the Liberty Wildlife Program? Again, just quick 20 seconds or so to tell us where we can learn more. Sure. Sure. All you have to do is go to the libertywildlife.org. That's our webpage. On the front page, there'll be a link for the repository, they can go to the repository and learn uh, learn everything they need to know about ordering feathers and also download an application. Well, that's all the time we have for the show. I'd like to again thank our guests, Tiana Williams, Robert Mesta, and Angela Sandina for a thought-provoking conversation on tribal efforts to reintroduce the endangered condor into North American skies. Join us tomorrow as we hear about what an overturned Roe versus Wade decision could mean for abortion access for Native people. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. First baby, don't know where to start, CMS program coverage, prenatal service, enroll today. 
contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.